She was young, she was popular, she was smart, and she was gorgeous. She was a freshman on a track scholarship at an Ivy League school, but then she came home for Thanksgiving and told her family something was off. She wasn't laughing, she wasn't smiling, she wanted to quit running or transfer schools or get some sleep or do something or anything to stop feeling tired all the time. She scheduled a meeting with her coach to tell him she wanted to quit, but he convinced her to keep running. And one day, a week and a half later, she made her bed, left her dorm, told her friends she'd meet them that night, bought some gifts for her family, wrote a note about how she didn't know who she was anymore, took a scenic picture, posted it to Instagram, and then took her own life. And just like that, she was gone. There's really no way to know why Madison Holleran took her life in 2014. If you read Kate Fagan's book, What Made Maddie Run, you saw how the author explored different facets of her life to figure out what went wrong. Perfectionism, the transition to college, the influence of smartphones and social media. But Fagan didn't look too deeply into what Maddie herself said was the problem, running. That's probably because most people think of running as a solution for depression. And the majority of the time, that's true. Exercise helps with depression, but on this episode of the Keep Hope Alive podcast, we're going to talk about the rare situation where it doesn't. My name is Mike, and I'm hoping that as we discuss this, you'll see depression in a new light. I swam growing up and I was decent. I was on swim team, and then I started running cross country in high school, and I was pretty good. Cheryl has the outward bubbliness of a happy-go-lucky teenager and the Instagram account to match, but she's actually a mother of four in her 30s, and she's dealt with depression and suicide for most of her adult life. How have you been, anyway? Um, I mean, it's always a mixed bag, but overall, well. <laughs> she's woken up in the ER after a suicide attempt, she's been to a psychiatric treatment facility, and over the years, she's tried just about every treatment for depression that you can imagine, some of which have worked some of the time. But the one that works the best, it's exercise. It's like my, my biggest, most reliable antidepressant. Times when I'm at my absolute worst, even when I'm in like a really deep depression for a prolonged time, I don't want to get out there, but I get out there and I feel better, at least for some period of time. That's how exercise is supposed to work with depression. It mellows out the symptoms. But have you ever wondered why? Because there's no clear, this is what depression is in the body, there's no clear, well, this is what exercise must be doing to help it. We're going to get into some thick science for a minute, but stick with me. This is Dr. Jacob Meyer, who does research on exercise and mood at Iowa State University. Serotonin is known to increase when people exercise. You probably know serotonin is the happiness hormone, and suicidal people have been shown to have lower serotonin levels. And then also endocannabinoids, the body's own molecules that interact with the system that cannabis interacts with. When people exercise, their endocannabinoids go up. So when people talk about a runner's high, it's quite literally stimulating the same part of the brain as smoking marijuana. The bottom line is that exercise makes your brain feel happy. So you can understand why someone might keep coming back to exercise for that happiness hit again and again. I would get up early in the morning and I would go do this crazy hard boot camp class at the gym and come back, take care of the older kids and get my husband off to work. And then I would go back to the gym with the kids and I was allowed two hours in the daycare. And I would spend that full two hours working out. And that was like the only way that I was holding things together during that time. A few years ago, a group of researchers surveyed 1.2 million people and basically asked, how much do you exercise? How often? And how often do you have bad mental health days? People who ran or swam or rode a bicycle or played soccer for about 45 minutes for as many as 24 days a month had fewer bad mental health days than people who didn't. But for people who ran or exercised for more than 90 minutes a day or more than 25 days a month, there's a different story. 
Was it still better than being a couch potato? Yes, absolutely. But it wasn't quite as good as 45 minutes a day, 24 days a month. But who would want to exercise that much anyway? This was my first ultra. You hit two peaks. It's 34 miles and over 7,000 feet of elevation, and I won it. Squat Peak 50 miler this year, Ute 100 mile belt buckle. This was a month off of crutches. My friend Andrea started running to lose weight when she was a teenager. She started racing marathons after college. Yeah, I did 40-something marathons in the next 15 years or so. But marathons were just a gateway drug into something bigger. Back in the 90s, ultramarathon running was a niche sport with about 35,000 participants in the United States. In 2020, that number was over 600,000. In Andrea's case, she found the sport just as she was going through a divorce and after learning two of her children were autistic. A lot was going on in my life that was really messy and complicated and it felt like in the trails I was able to escape that and process it. It's something we joke about, you know, if you're out here on the trails or if you're signing up for 100 milers, what's your sob story or what's your trauma or, you know, why, why are you here? But Andrea herself describes her relationship with running as an addiction that is not always healthy. I put so much into running as a coping mechanism. I'm so sad. I'm so depressed or whatever. I'm, I'm not feeling well. What do I do with that? Either I stay in bed, which I can't do, or I run. And okay, now I, I ran in the morning and I feel a little bit better and I can get through a few hours and feel pretty good. And now it's lunch and I... I feel really sad again. Okay, what can I do now? I'll go running again or I'll ride my bike now and then that'll get me through the afternoon and I'll feel okay. And then it's evening and gosh, now I'm so sad again. I'm so depressed. What can I do? I guess I'll go run again. Um, it's like drinking or a cigarette. You know, it's the thing that's going to give me a temporary reprieve from the feelings that I don't want to feel. A lot of times when athletes are feeling depressed, they, they don't attribute it to the training. They think, well, it's school or grades or relationship issue. This is Dr. John Raglan, a public health professor at Indiana University Bloomington, who studies something called overtraining syndrome. You know, if you view physical activity as a form of medicine, then like any type of medicine, the outcome depends upon the dosage and it also depends upon the characteristics of the person using that medicine because, you know, the effects may and will vary. So overtraining syndrome is a negative outcome of the intense training that serious competitive athletes have to undergo to achieve peak training. Essentially, an athlete goes too far and they see a sudden drop in performance that is accompanied by a whole host of symptoms, including depression. The problem is there's always this natural tendency to push it a little further. And if you push it too far, then instead of improving, the athlete gets worse, catastrophically worse. The bigger the pill you take, the greater the risk. It's hard to say for certain whether Andrea has dealt with overtraining, but every so often she gets forced to pause her running routine. And when that happens, it allows her to take a step back and see a bigger picture. Every time I get injured, I think, okay. I see what I was doing. I was sad, and so I was running too much. Something similar happened for Cheryl when she was doing her three hours per day workout routine. She got mononucleosis and had to hit pause. And when she started up again, she rethought her approach. I was prayerful about it. And the answer that came was like, you need to scale back. 
But what if scaling back wasn't an option? What if there was a team and a coach relying on you and fans shouting your name? Or what if your sport was paying your tuition, putting food on your table, supplying your social life, providing a career path, or giving you your entire identity? Boise State's Lopez, Utah State Snyder coming through. On the Flow XC countdown on the Utah State Aggie women. They are led by Alyssa Snyder, All-American. Now she didn't run at all. This is the great Alice Wright. Followed by Snyder, Utah State, of Boise State, another Boise State runner in Minnesota. Alyssa Snyder had a subpar freshman season at Montana State, and over the next year she transformed herself, becoming one of the most dominant distance runners in the NCAA. Um, right now, in the last year, I went from this time last year running 50 miles a week to 70 miles a week over winter break. Like Madison Holleran, Alyssa experienced depression as a collegiate runner. But unlike Maddie, she was used to it. It had happened in high school, and she already knew that running big miles meant going to dark places. At one point in time, when I was in high school, I remember I finished a workout, and at this point in time, I was working with a different coach than my, than my high school coach. And I was like, dude, I'm tired. Like, I know I've been hitting these times, but I'm really, honestly, I'm just so tired. And he looked at me and was like, Liz, if you want to be a good distance runner, you're going to have to get used to being tired because that's going to be most of your life for the next couple of years. Whenever I ramp up my mileage again, I just have to prepare for two weeks to a month of my brain being like, it's time for a suicide. You're going to have two weeks to a month where you're just want to, you're going to want to sleep or kill yourself pretty much all the time. It's hard to describe the emotional roller coaster Alyssa experienced in college. Friction with coaches and teammates, coming in fourth at the NCAA 10K Championship, transferring schools, leading her team to their first ever appearance at cross country nationals, and getting her second All American award, then getting injured and struggling to make a comeback. The entire time, she dealt with feelings of depression and thoughts of suicide. Yeah, being tired all the time and knowing the cause. And it's like it's an easily addressable cause, but also that easily addressable cause is paying for your college or, you know, the, the foundation of your social life or whatever. So, of course, you can't just walk away from that. Unless you've gone through it, you don't understand. Twin sisters Kyla and Alex Coates were once professional triathletes on the Canadian national team. So when they talk about fatigue, everyone's like, oh, I've been fatigued. And it's like, no, you don't understand <laughs> what it's like not to be able to use your brain. Like, you don't understand how bad that is. But Kyla dug herself so deep into an overtraining hole that for years afterward, she still couldn't properly train. I don't even know so much that I need to be careful. It's like, I can't. I can't go out there and do a hard workout and expect to be able to do another hard workout. The two sisters are now both pursuing PhDs in exercise science. How much of this was you trying to figure out what the heck just happened, you know, four or five years ago? All of it. <laughs> because they lived through it, Alex and Kyla know exactly what they're seeing when symptoms of overtraining surface. Like I knew what when the athletes were overreached and honestly, most of it is mood based. They would come in and they would like not be able to talk to me and they'd be so grumpy or they'd be like crying or whatever and be like, okay, cool. You got, you're there. We're good. We can test you and you're done. Unfortunately, Alex, Kyla and Dr. Raglan all say there's just one solution for overtraining induced depression. You have to stop training. If you are experiencing depression because of training, 
because you are so exhausted, you're in an exhaustion hole. If you do more exercise, you are not going to feel better. Yeah, like they look exactly the same. And I think a lot of athletes have been diagnosed, like, because there's nothing to grab onto, because doctors don't understand what this is. And nobody really talks about it. They're just gonna be like, okay, we know you're depressed. So and we know that there's all these other, you know, physiological symptoms that come along with depression. So we're just going to treat you like as if you're depressed, maybe they'll give you drugs, whatever. And that, of course, isn't going to help because that wasn't the main driving force. That wasn't the issue to begin with. We know from our own research and others that in some cases, the depression that athletes experience from overtraining syndrome is severe enough that they have to be hospitalized. In other words, they they do have suicidal ideation. You have to stop training. And in a couple of cases, they recovered and competed at the level they did before. In another case, the athlete recovered symptomatically 100% and then decided to drop out of the sport. Ultimately, Alyssa came to that conclusion on her own. The last straw came in her final cross-country season. She found herself leaving her coach's office in tears almost every week as he accused her of simply not trying hard enough and not caring. That was a hell of a season for me because during that season, it was like a week before conference, I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which coming from a mental health background and being in psychology and getting that diagnosis, I was like, oh my God, that's not a good one physical injuries that you can see everybody's really sympathetic about those you know when I when I had my spinal injury everyone was like oh my gosh that's awful that's terrible we're so sorry because you can see on an MRI that something goes wrong but then when I had struggles with my mental health it was more of like a well you really just need to get it together Alyssa decided not to race her last season of outdoor track. She started working in mental health clinics, and now she's working on a graduate degree in clinical psychology. You know, all in all, I think stepping away from track was one of the best things I could have done for myself. I still, you know, I still exercise. I'm just trying to figure out a way to do it in a healthy way where I don't feel like I'm punishing my body for existing. We'll never know whether overtraining played a role in Madison Holleran's depression and suicide. So what do we make of all of this? Is the message just to not take your sport too far? Or is there something else us non-elites can learn that will help us be more empathetic to those who have depression? You shouldn't fight it. Like if you really don't want to go to training, you shouldn't. Your body knows that you're not meant to be going to training and it's not in your head and it's not a lack of motivation and it's not like a lack of resiliency or grit. Any athlete who's been training super hard isn't lacking that. Your feelings uh, very much matter because uh, I think the, the way you feel is a, a manifestation of all these different physiological inputs. Those measures are different in different people, but the feelings that they generate, I think, are the same. And so when you know athletes trust in their feelings, that they're their own best expert witness, then you have a, a formidable tool to help you. This has been an episode of the Keep Hope Alive podcast. Music for this episode came from Olmos, Le Magician, and Tregs, or maybe it's T-R-E-G-S. I'm not really sure. If you're in a suicidal crisis, please call 1-800-273-8255 right now. Follow me.